Hey, my name is Gil and I'm an alcoholic. I'm also a dysfunctional adult child of a functional family. Uh, this is it. This is uh, Saturday Morning Live. Uh, brought to you from the floor of the beautiful Yosemite Valley. And uh, it means to me that uh, the world is in session and we are in attendance. And we have a right to membership and a right to vote. And we are here on the floor. They're not going to ask us to vote. But we're right here, on the floor. I mean, sitting or standing, not on the floor the way it used to be. <laughs> and it's not organized. I mean, you hear yourself supporting, so you're here by your own expense, except me. <laughs> um, I guarantee I'd be here anyway. Um... I think this is great, the business of not, uh, of being reminded not to get too organized. Because, uh, I think that some of us, or I in particular, had brief brushes in my life with organized ritual and organized uh, patterns and organized structures and things like that. And, uh, I somehow, uh, engaged in a hobby that made me incompatible with that kind of living. I became disorganized, and I became disoriented, and I became disenfranchised, and disillusioned, and dismembered, and disfigured, and divorced. So I don't think that agreed with me, uh, at least not in conjunction with uh, the way my life was before I came to this program and this fellowship. I, I'm going to take my jacket off. Now that you know that I have a gray suit, not only that, I have a vest, but I didn't bring it. Well, you know, I come from part of California where symbolism, at least symbolism of sophistication, of pseudo-sophistication, is kind of important. You know, we have, uh, I, I ride the bus, the Golden Gate Transit bus, and people have three-piece suits on there. I mean, people, both sexes, have three-piece suits on the bus. And, and that's all right, that's not a bad symbol, you know. But there are other symbols. If you're, uh, you know, a new resident in Marin County, it'll be expected that in not too long a time, you will have in your driveway... An orgasmic BMW and a, an erectile Cherokee Jeep or Cherokee Chief Quadramatic, if you please. That means four on the floor. And that's pretty symbolic. And it's easy for me to talk about that now because all I've got in regards to those things is nostalgia. Uh, I. Sometimes I hesitate to admit that because I read somewhere with a symptom of impotence. I was, um, I, I think, uh, I had, I really planned to be nervous, but I don't, no, I don't think I planned to be nervous, but I, I sort of feel a little bit that way. So at least I'm glad that there's a podium, so there's one thing I don't need to worry about, and that's my zipper. Um, 
If it ever breaks, it's because it's defective. I'll tell you that. Um, I had more or less planned to. Um, well, I, I planned to do some sharing. And again, the business of this organization is great in my estimation because you know it means that we are not. This thing is not dictated by anybody. I mean, it's not dictated by um, the Department of, uh, of uh, Public Relations or by uh, advertising uh, budgets or things like that. It just happens from your own contributions and, and from your own self-support, and I think that's great. I, um, I guess I'm going to tell you about life after birth. That's what my story is, life after birth. I, um, well, before birth, I don't have too many recollections about that. However, I discovered that when my mother was nine months pregnant and in labor, she was in Canada, and that's where I chose to be born. And uh, my life started then in a fairly comfortable way. I think that I really had a, uh, uh, a childhood and an adolescence. Um, that included more contentment than discontent. And maybe that means I had a happy childhood and adolescence. I hope it was, because otherwise it would be damn hard to explain why I made it last 45 years. That's, that's when I became an adolescent. Right? I ran away from home at 47. I got four teenagers at home, and the youngest is 13, and we have four teenagers. The youngest is 13, and I think any day now she's going to pull it. And she's not going to wait till she's 47 years old, right? She's not retarded like her father. Um, well, I like to mention the kids also, because uh, it, it comes a little bit as a surprise sometimes to people who look at my hair. What I need to say about that, though, is that... Uh, the whole process of having had three children, four children in my uh, late decades uh, has more to do and gravitates a lot more around, uh, around high fidelity than high frequency. But I'm, but I'm grateful for that. Well, you know, I got sober, I got sober and I started remembering where I lived, so I slept at home. That's one of the ways it happened. Well, let's get back to what I had made vague plans about. I thought for once I was going to talk about my experience in doing the steps. However, uh, I hope to refer to some because that's what this program is about. And so far I've been talking about traditions and the parts of it that I like in them. Uh, I think that the way the steps were spoken about by my two speaker predecessors of yesterday, that way was so inspiring and so educational for me that anything I might say along those lines may not be meant to do this and may not be interpreted that way, but for me would be some form of competition. And I don't want to do competition. I'll tell you frankly, that's one thing I liked about this program when I, and this fellowship when I came. There is here no damn competition. 
As a matter of fact, I discovered here that I had never liked competition. Well, I got involved in some, uh, you know, scholastic competitions. I went to school for a long time, and we'd get graded. Uh, I didn't do much uh, athletic, I didn't have much exposure to athletic competition because it interfered with my hobby. And uh, I prefer drinking. And uh, competition for me, I think, had uh, only one of two effects. And either one was inevitable. If I won as a result of a competitive endeavor of some kind or other, I would be an embarrassed winner. And when I lost, I was a resentful loser. And once I found out I was like that, it took a long time, but once I found out I was like that, I choose to stay out of competition. And it's not the way it would be interpreted necessarily by the audience, but it's the way I would feel about it. I, I want to express my gratitude to the two speakers yesterday. Because I'll tell you one thing amongst others that came to my mind was I was, while I was listening to both of them, one in the afternoon and one in the evening, one thing that came to my mind was that um, I remember that when I had done the steps in a way that was somewhat similar to the way they were sharing the way they had done the steps, I remember that I felt damn good. And I asked myself, maybe, how come I don't still feel good? And then I, I answered my own question. I know how come it's because I'm not doing them that way right now. So I'm going to start doing them all over again. As a matter of fact, I did. Last night, I took three of them. I took the first three. The power is over alcohol. I take that every day, I guess. Uh, I had trouble with uh, the business of insanity. Not so much the business of insanity, because I knew that in, in Canada, actually, insanity is a, synony it's a synonym. It's synonymous to being uh, dangerous to be at large. And I knew I was that. I liked to be dangerous to be at large. I mean, I enjoyed that. That's one of the reasons I drank, because I wanted to be at large and, and hopefully dangerous. I don't know if I ended up causing very much danger, really. I thought sometimes if I, um, if I got drunk when I was angry, I would end up at least appearing dangerous. But then I discovered that along with being angry, I was also chicken, so it was not very dangerous. I had mixtures of things, you know. I had a, I had a low self-esteem, but it was combined with a high sense of self-importance. And my low self-esteem was like a wound that I carried with me. And my high sense of self-importance and the way I kept nurturing that was a way that was detrimental to the healing of the wound. I kept dressing it with, I kept dressing this damn wound with things that would prevent its healing. And I did that until I came to this fellowship. Anyway, I, I did the first three steps last night, turning my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. I almost, uh, I almost did uh, the ninth step. It has to do with making amends. In the middle of the night, I woke up a few times. And the amends that I would have liked, that I would have had to make to the person that I thought I might have offended in one way or another was to my wife. And she was sleeping. 
And I didn't think that was appropriate because it says acceptance to do so would injure them or others. It would injure her to wake her up and tell her, you know, I want to tell you I was wrong. In the first place, she would have said, she would have also said, maybe that's why I didn't do it. She would have also said, so what's new? So, um, anyway. I don't think I ever drank non-alcoholically, except on a few occasions when I was trying to imitate non-alcoholics. And I don't know why I ever had a, a desire to imitate non-alcoholics, because I don't put them down, really. But what I see in non-alcoholic drinking, I like to describe as naive drinking. And if, they, if you think, if you're pseudo-sophisticated, you know, naivete is not very appealing. So I never wanted to do that kind of drinking. I suppose that I did in some sort of imitation because there was some external factor, such as a, a higher power, like my first wife, who was around. And before that, my mother. My mother was a higher power. I don't know if there was any alcoholism in my family except with one brother, and the reason I know he was because he told me and he had the temerity to get sober three years before I did. So I went on for three years fearing the hell out of him. And uh, he surprised me one day because uh, when, during those three years that he was sober, I borrowed an automobile from him on a visit to my hometown, which is Winnipeg. Uh, a lot of people from Winnipeg is, oh, I was going to say well represented. It was well represented last night. Uh, but it is represented. We're not, we're not in majority, I know that. But anyway, I bought a car from my brother and destroyed it. That's one of the things that I did with organizations like driving cars and uh, organized, uh, you know, traffic laws and traffic signs. Uh, I totaled cars and I totaled his. And he was working for a brewery. So I had to go and uh, not announce it, to, announce it to him because the mounted police had found the registration during the night. They hadn't found me, but they found the registration, and they contacted him and told him about what happened to his car, so I went and sort of second-handedly uh, told him what had happened to his car and to me. And I expect that he was older and bigger than I am. Than I, yeah, he was. And uh, I expected to be reprimanded and to be given hell, as I thought I deserved it. I gave myself hell uh, before I got to his office, and I thought that I should get it too, that I should get it from him also. Instead of that, he said to me, and that was one of the first times, I think, that I uh, became aware of what a non-drinking alcoholic's attitude could be to a drinking one. And uh, my brother said to me at his office on one side of the street, and uh, Brody was on the other side. And I stood in the door of his office, prepared for almost anything, and he said to me, uh, Well, I don't know if you feel as bad as you look, but in case you do, why don't you go across the street and ask the brewmaster to give you a couple, and, and then come on back over and we'll talk a little bit about what went on and I couldn't believe what I was hearing but I believe that now I know that non-alcoholics talk that way to people who are still drinking or to people who are new in the program and that later on was going to happen to me more than once 
in uh, my first contacting this fellowship. So I had uh, a fun phase. in my When I was starting the total cause, I was in the second phase. That's the fun and trouble phase. I consider the course of my disease as having had four fa- three phases. The fun phase, the fun and trouble phase, and the complication phase. And I think as long as, as long as there's that recognition about this particular disease of, oh, which we now call in 1988, according to the DSM-3 in review, that's a diagnostic manual that the psychiatrists uh, keep reviewing all the time. They never publish a finished edition. And, uh, and that's all right. After all, psychiatrists are, are physicians like I am, and, uh, and I don't want to say anything against my colleagues. That's what we call competitors in medicine. Uh, this, this year, in 1988, our disease is called uh, psychoactive substance Dependence Syndrome. And if you happen to be honest enough to say that you've been, then we have an abuse. I don't know. I, I don't ask people how much they drink or how much they use. I work in this field. And that's, I need to say that because it's a form of, uh, you know... Uh, the form of advanced amends that I'm making for, for maybe using psychobabble as I go along. Yeah. Oh, we use all kinds of things. Not only the title of the disease, the diagnosis of the disease, but things like, uh, well, we had group today and he did very well. What did he do? He had a major breakthrough. No kidding. What happened? He cried. He cried. Christ sakes, I cried in every hotel in Edmonton. Long before the breakthrough, I'll tell you that. So anyway. Okay, I work in this field and it's got some it's got some funny titles. And uh, in my disease, then in the course of my disease, I had those three phases. I think I only began the complication phase, but I certainly uh, wallowed around the fun and trouble phase for a long time. And one reason I did that, I suppose, is the same reason that a lot of patients I've seen have told me they had done the same thing once they recovered. It is difficult having had a fun phase to a disease. It is kind of difficult once we get in the second phase. And by the way, that, that was really my invisible line. It wasn't going from non-alcoholic to alcoholic drinking. It was going from alcoholic fun drinking to alcoholic fun and trouble drinking. That's where the line was invisible for me. And during this second phase, one of the things that happened with me was to continue giving credit to booze for the fun part of the fun and trouble phase and being very cautious never to blame it for the trouble part. I'd find other things to blame. The fact that the goddamn RCMP didn't were using unmarked cars, that was one of them. That was to blame for the trouble part of that phase. Being married to a Hungarian woman was part of the trouble. It was quite a trouble for her, too, I'll tell you that. (laughs) 
Anyway, um, I, I really believe, you know, medically, and I don't believe this is non-scientific, that's what I'm trying to play at that too damn much. Maybe I am. Um, I really believe that if a lot of other diseases had a fun phase, it would be impossible to consider prevention. I mean, how can you tell people who are having fun, you know, you got a disease. I wasn't all that thrilled hearing I had a disease. Some alcoholics tell me they were, and I believe that. I wasn't all that thrilled to hear that this was a disease. Because I, think, I guess because I knew by that time that diseases could have complications. And, and I was already having mine, but I didn't quite know that. But I, I liked it when it was a sin, frankly. I liked it when it was not the only sin I liked either. I liked sin in general. And, uh, you know, there's some I can't keep up with, but... Uh, uh, I, I liked sin, and I liked when alcoholism was a sin. I accused myself, mostly because I belonged to a religion that included some process called confession. And it wasn't a process, God damn it, it was a commandment. I wonder what would have happened, with me anyway, I wonder what would have happened if the commandments would have been presented like the steps. Man! I don't, I don't really know, and I'm not trying to change them either, any more than I would try to change the step. But you know, if one of the commandments had said, well, you might find yourself coveting your neighbor's wife, and that happened to us that week. We had somebody sharing the experience before, see? And that happened to us too. And we almost scored... But her husband came home sooner than expected. Maybe I would have accepted that. I don't know. Uh, and I, I'm not, I hope I'm not trying to rewrite those things. I'm not trying to rewrite anything. Anyway, um, I have the fun say, well, you're not going to sell any vaccine or inoculation for a disease that has a fun phase. You know, people ask us that quite often, you know. Do they really have a test now that they could test, you know, the four-year-olds or kindergarten kids and then put the results on their report card and have the kids bring that home and say the school nurse did the test for alcoholism and your kid came out positive, so we suggest you get them vaccinated? And the kids would say, the hell with that. I don't want to get vaccinated. You know, the thing we hear most of, the thing that, one of the things I remember hearing very often in my childhood about booze and boozers is that they were feeling no pain. My dad, I lived in a very small village. I say Winnipeg, but I lived 50 miles away from there, in a very small village, where my dad had the only outlet. I you know what an outlet is in town, and the only place that sold booze was only beer, but it was eight, nine, ten percent beer. It was okay, believe me. Take my word for it. And um, well, you know, we, I saw people walk out of there. I heard people laugh in there. I saw them walk out, you know, kind of staggering all over the place. Uh, I saw my dad have to kick them out sometimes. And then uh, somebody standing around would say, I don't know what's the matter with George or Jimmy, whatever the guy's name was, but he's sure feeling no pain. Well, Christ, you're feeling no pain. And I, when I started finding out I had this condition, 
Uh, hell, I'm feeling no pain at all. If somebody had tried to sell me vaccine, I would have said, go sell it where, you know, go sell it in one of the third world countries. But don't try and sell me any vaccine against a disease that's going to give me a fun phase. And I'm going to try to make it last as, as long as possible. Well, the one problem with me was that the co- that was the course of my disease, and I, I could have suspected, but didn't, that the entire course of the disease would not be dissimilar to what an isolated drinking episode was. Because an isolated drinking episode, the course of the disease just means, you know, repeated episodes as time goes by. I was all kinds of things, for instance. I was not necessarily an episodic, although I was at times because when I was in boarding school, I could only go out one day a month, so I was episodic. But then I spent three or four months in, at the outlet, where my, my father's place was, and there I became a, day, a daily drinker. And I didn't have to take refresher courses in the spring to switch from uh, episodic to daily drinker. And then I went to medical school, and in medical school I practiced episodic sobriety. <laughs> because I had to prepare for tests at least twice a year. Uh, anyway, um, I, um, I, I guess I lost my train of thought, which is okay, I'll get another one. Get another one. <laughs> All right. So the isolated drinking episode for me consisted in the getting drunk phase, the being drunk phase, and then the coming off. Well, the coming off is comparable to the complication phase. The being drunk phase for me was kind of a question mark. I was drunk. And I had blackouts. I was glad when I had blackouts. Because I answer, I, I just, when I discovered I was having blackouts, I relied on them, really. And I was glad because coming off was so bad. My hangovers were so bad that I wanted, to, I was going to a Jesuit school and I was learning logic and I wanted to be logical. And I wanted to say, God damn it, I gotta balance things out. And if I feel this bad for two, three, and four days, I want to remember that I had a lot of fun. And uh, eventually, I couldn't remember I had a lot of fun because the fun phase of getting drunk became shorter and shorter. That was another thing in the progression of my... That was part of the progression of my illness, and I don't think that I'm unique. I'm special, but I'm not unique. (laughs) I I used to think I was unique. and I received a lot of things that made me think I was unique. A lot of things that were based on love. You know, my parents, another thing that growing up, I was loved. Not only did I not suffer child neglect or child abuse or uh, molestation. I looked forward to molestation, really. Because I, I read about what that might consist of. And I, I thought, I hope my turn comes sooner or later. And it did, and I became passionate. Anyway, um, the getting drunk phase then became shorter and shorter. But I don't want anybody, I'd like to, and I do once in a while, argue with people that tell me that uh, drinking is all miserable if you're an alcoholic. I don't think that's true. I don't think that that's true because I don't think that way about my higher power. That my higher power would have made me miserable through my illness 
Well, eventually he allowed complications to take place with which I cooperated, in which I participated willingly. But the Supreme Court called it willful misconduct. Uh, that's okay. I had some of that too, willful misconduct. So my getting drunk phase became shorter and shorter because I was anxious to be drunk. And I guess one of the reasons, although I didn't, I wasn't aware that I was, uh, that I was acting reasonably or that I was using my reason, but one of the reasons was that I wanted to get blacked out as soon as possible in case my hangover would be so bad again that I could not justify the amount of fun which I couldn't remember. And I couldn't balance the equation. And in logic, you're supposed to try to do that. Balance equations. My hangovers, but I've said this many times, my hangovers that are described, are fully described, without having to elaborate on it, are fully described in the title of a Western music song that says, I feel so bad I'm going to have to get better to die. And that's, that's what it was about. That's the way it was. So, you know, it's not surprising that the course of my disease, uh, you know, it can be described in a similar way that the isolated drinking episode, the way I did it, uh, is described by a, a first phase, which is a fun phase. I call that also the Oscruet syndrome, the, the, the fun phase. And it's a lot of fun. Anyhow, it didn't continue that way. And I spent some time blaming the trouble on something else and still having a little portion of fun. Eventually, in 1960, and that sounds like I had 28 years of uh, uninterrupted sobriety, and that's not so. Because I said that at a meeting, and then I forgot to say the rest, and now I've got chips for 28 years, and I've got to go back and return one next Friday. Uh, anyway, I don't know, actually, though, I've also rationalized that. I have a, my alcoholic mind developed at least one faculty, and that was rationalization. I did, I do that well. I still think I do that well. I don't have to utilize it as much as I used to, but I, I developed that fairly well. Not convincingly for other people, but I believe it myself. Uh, I um, rationalized the business of 28 years by thinking of an anniversary that I like to celebrate, which is the anniversary of the day that I call this fellowship. And that's what's important for me. It is also important to have developed some spirituality along the line and have worked the steps in order to develop some spirituality. I'm not saying that's not important, but the day that I call this fellowship is a day that I don't want to ever forget. And that was the beginning of a process not an immediate process of recovery and sobriety and serenity. But it was a process of a recognition that in, the, in human nature there was some spirituality. There wasn't a hell of a lot in me, because I think that's what I had lost. So sometimes, when it, so I drank after, uh, after 1960. I drank during 1960. I know that because I got called by an old nun who was... Uh, the administrator of the hospital on which I was on the staff. And she did, uh, she didn't know the word intervention. And she, I'm not sure she knew the word uh, uh, confrontation, but she did one. She knew how to do one. She said to me, sit down. And I sat down. 
then she said, I understand you have a problem. I said, yes, sister. And she kept on working, whatever she was doing, ignored me. And finally looked at me again and said, are you doing anything about it? And I lied, but I made a declaration of intent. And I said, yes, sister. And then she finally looked at me and said, that's all. Well, you know, to put that in profane, in profane terms, which I still use, although that's an improvement I used to be obscene. Um, to put that in more profane terms, because it was 1960, there were special expressions that were coming out. I think what I meant when I said to her, yes, sister, I'm doing something about it, was I'm, I'm going to start right now putting my shit together. And... Uh, Whatever she said was not in those words, but what it meant to me, I'm not sure I give a damn whether you ever put your shit together, but you're going you're to quit spreading it around St. Mary's Hospital. <laughs> and that was, a good, that, was, that was a healthy confrontation for me. Well, I finally, I finally um, became so sick that I was, I was going to have to get better to die, and I was in a small apartment in San Francisco, the occupants of which were out of the country, which is how I got to be invited to, to stay in that apartment. I lost a lot of social health. Social health has to do with interaction with other people. And I used to, I hadn't been scratched off everybody's list, I guess, by mistake. And I used to occasionally get invited around the holiday season. <laughs> but I found out that at some of these house parties, people used to walk away from me with enthusiasm. They weren't, they weren't seeking interaction with me. So that I think partly because those two girls were leaving town, I met them when they were on their way to the airport to give me the key to their, key to their apartment, and I went and stayed there. Matter of fact, they told me I looked tired. And I found out afterwards that there was an expression that said I was sick and tired. So I moved in there and uh, stayed there for three days, and there was booze in there. These girls entertained, and I didn't drink. And I kept asking God what to do. But I didn't do that in the form of a prayer. I said in step of heaven. I kept saying, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do? <laughs> I, I go in the bathroom. I went to the bathroom a lot. And lost a lot of fluid. I, Fluids. I think I need an IV. I got dehydrated. Anyway, I go to the bathroom, look in the mirror. Say, oh, Christ. God, I wish I knew what to do. I kept this up for three days. On the third day, I was, I was smoking then. And, but not when I was too sick to die. Uh, because I couldn't smoke then. But on about the third day after my last drink, I thought, well, I think I feel like smoking. I'm getting bored. I had a lot of boredom in my life. I was bored a lot. And I was also boring a lot, because if I have boredom, then I only give what I've got. So I have certain character things like that, you know. I have a surplus of humility shortage and all kinds of crap like that. Um, so I was bored in there for three days, and I finally lit a cigarette on the third day and looked at the side of the book of matches, and there was a written, a handwritten phone number in there. I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know whose number it was. I didn't know whose matches they were. And uh, as I got more bored, I decided to try the number. 
Well, the only one way of finding out is sit there wondering, puzzled, in a dilemma. In a crisis, for Christ. That's, those are the kinds of crises I get. I don't get other crises. World War II was not a crisis for me. I didn't go. I call it, I call it being stationed in an essential war industry. I was drinking and playing poker with coal miners in the foot of the Canadian Rockies for four years. That's what I was doing. I'll tell you, I was lucky. And I think the Allies were lucky, too. <laughs> well, one guy I was drinking with one, one day told me. I told him, I, said, I think maybe I'm going to enlist. I'm not getting drafted because I'm, I'm the Selective Service tells me I have to stay here. And one day a guy was drinking with me. With you. If you ever enlist and they accept you, I'm going to start buying German war bonds. <laughs> you know, if you're going to be in the medical corps, for Christ's sake, disastrous for the Allies. Anyway, um, where were we? We were in this apartment. I, I dialed the number and the answer was, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, can we help you? And I didn't know it, but the answer was, you're goddamn right, you can help me. I know it now. I think I thought I was beyond help. Uh, I think I was mistaking helplessness with hopelessness and a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, I can't remember how I was thinking or exactly what I was thinking. But I remember what happened. What happened was I kept repeating to this guy on the phone who had been sober 23 years. And he didn't, never told me that. I got to know him well for the following two or three years but it was told to me by somebody else who knew him better. And he never told me he'd been sober 23 years, but he had been at the, on the day of that telephone call. And I kept repeating to him, I haven't had a drink for three days. First, I gave him my name, my full name, with some degrees afterwards. Some that I had and some that I didn't have. I, didn't have. I, think, I, I think I told him... I think I told him that I had once been the chief of staff in a, in a hospital in northern Alberta. That happens to be true because I was in a small town where there was only four, 24 beds in the hospital, and I was the only doctor. So I was the best doctor in town. I was the chief of staff. I was director of medical education. Man, you name it. And I, and I told this guy all that. I don't know why I said that. I think it may have had somebody, something to do with I don't know how I could have even suspected at that time, that Bill Wilson only had ten more years to live, but maybe somehow I was thinking he's going to need a successor. And, and, uh, and I want this organization to know right now they're not getting a bum asking to join. Well, this guy, and I find this a spiritual phenomenon, the fact that this guy, Jack Irving, was able to resist after I had repeated six times at least in five minutes that I hadn't had a drink for three days and he had been sober 23 years, that he would be able to resist the temptation of saying something like, three days? No shit. <laughs> Never said that. Never said that. He said, three days? That's great. That's terrific. And he kept repeating that. Come to think of it, he was repetitious also. He kept repeating that. 
he congratulated me. He, he, you know, he told me that, that, that I was doing something worthwhile for myself. Then he talked about himself. Mostly talked about himself. But he was gentle, and he was kind, and he was sensitive to my condition. And he had to be that through spirituality. That's what I understand spirituality to be. I have regained a little bit of it because I'm able to choke up. And I want to thank you for letting me choke up. But that's not the end, you know. Sometimes I'm really thankful. I'm kind of sorry about that. I'm kind of sorry about that because I realize that in this kind of interaction where there's a speaker and an audience, it is something of a, of a tacit contract between the audience and the speaker. And the contract is that the speaker is going to speak. That's my part of the contract. And your part of the contract is that you listen. And sometimes you want to terminate your contract before I do. <laughs> so I feel free to do that. You can circulate. I, um, so Jack Irving was kind and he was tender. And I'll tell you, I was not treated... He didn't treat me with kid, kid gloves. That's not the expression that applies there. But he was sensitive to my condition. And he said to me things that I, I thought... They were not new words for me in the English language. Although that's not my... It doesn't happen to be my primary language. Uh, as you can tell by the accent. Anyway, uh, he said to me words that I had never heard put together in relationship to my drinking. He said to me, in case that means you've had enough. What, what, what can that mean, having had enough to drink? I know what it means to have too much. I know what it means to swear that I'm not going to have any at all, forever, three times the same day. I know what that means. What is this thing about enough to drink? Somehow that was not threatening. And he said, in case it means and keep on postponing the next one until we can go to a meeting together tomorrow. Well, I tell you, not too many people had asked me to go anywhere with them for a long time. Canadian Mounted Police asked me to go somewhere. <laughs> uh, California Highway Patrol. And, you know, they talk about this age of communication, for Christ's sake. Communication existed long before 1980, and it was well organized, at least between those two police departments. Anyway, Jack Irving was kind and he was considerate. And I think that's possibly why I, I ended up responding. Maybe not immediately, but I ended up responding. At the first meeting the next day, somebody said to me, this thing, I was the only newcomer, they told me I was the only most important person in the room, and I thought, what's new? Uh, I, um, it was a small meeting, and, um, and some guy told me after the meeting when I asked him, uh, what's this damn message? I heard the term message at the meeting. What's this message? The guy said, uh, I've been around three or four years, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, he said, let me tell you this. What do you expect this thing to do for you? I said, well, I think it, maybe it's going to sober me up, keep me sober, it's not going to do that. What's it going to do? It's going to screw up any future drinking you may have to do. 
And he was right. He was absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons in my rationalization why I look at that, for me, as an anniversary, as a, as a point in my life that was really, really meaningful to me, because I never drank again without the desire to stop. And I'll tell you right now, I don't recommend that to my worst enemies. To drink with the desire to stop is cruel and unusual punishment. So when, uh, you know, people working in the field like I am start talking to me about alcoholics going back to control drinking, for Christ's sake, don't let anybody catch you at doing that to anybody because that's, that's, that's violence. Don't, don't impose that on anybody. Well, I was well treated. And I've been well treated since. And I had myself in recognizing the spirituality through sensitivity in Jack Irving, it caused me to recognize that that's what I had lost. Because in, in those three days that preceded that phone call, I wasn't sure how to identify what I had lost. I hadn't lost my medical license. I, had, I didn't need it. I didn't have very many patients. <laughs> but I hadn't lost it. I hadn't lost my home. I couldn't get into it because it was a restraining order, but I hadn't lost it. I hadn't lost my car. I'm not sure I remembered what make it was, but I hadn't lost it. But what I had lost was my sensitivity to the human condition. I had become impervious. Now, I could not, right now, I had a tough time this morning looking around at the reflections of the sun on these rocks. And I know I wasn't the only one in these mountains. I had a tough time doing that without choking up, and then I allowed myself to choke up a little bit. And I like doing that. I'm, that's one of the things I like in me. So I had lost the one thing that I liked in me, which had to do with sensitivity to the human condition. I used to be able to cry in empathy with another person who was crying. Uh, I loved my parents. I loved bringing them good report cards because I knew it made them feel good. And then over the years I made them feel lousy and I had a lot of amends to make to them. I, I think I was, I was blessed with something that the result of exposure to my other, my fellow human beings such as my parents. I was blessed once with the ability to love, and which I thought I had lost that day. And I love completely when I love. I, I mean, I feel love. My, my love is, is felt like something global, something systemic, something constitutional. I don't just love in my limbic, uh, my limbic system in my head. Or I don't just love, like the poets say, in my heart. My heart's pumping away. That's all it does. And I hope it doesn't stop. I love all over. I love in my toes and in my toenail and in my hair and in my thyroid. And I love everywhere. I also try to love the person I love that way, too. Which is one of the ways you end up having four kids in my age. Anyway, I had lost that. Now, Jack Irving was the initiation of the reacquisition of some of those things. 
And because my wife is present, I'm, not, I'm just going to say some of those things because, because she knows, you know, I don't mind talking about uh, what I was like when she's in an audience because she didn't know me when I was drinking. And even, I don't mind talking about what happened, but I've got to, keep, I've got to be careful about what it's like now. Uh, well, what it's like now is that I know I have regained the ability to do that. I'm not sure I put it in, pra- in practice as well as I'd like to. But I practice these steps. I practice these principles. And I want to say one thing about blessing. And I'm stealing it. I'm not stealing it. Christ, he, he quotes me. And I walked in a place one night when he was speaking and he was quoting me. And then I thought, well, I'm going to take the... That gives me a license to quote him. His name, and I'm not trying to compare myself to him. His name is Tom W., and Tom W. told us at a recent meeting in Mill Valley, well, within the past six months anyway, told us that he had attended a seminar of uh, ecclesiastical people, and uh, there was a rabbi who uh, was on the agenda of the program, the seminar, on the third day. And the rabbi had talked for whatever length of time on the official presentation, and then there was a time left for... Uh, questions and answers. The rabbi had used the term blessing several times in his talk. And during the questions and answer period, somebody asked him if he'd like to elaborate on his interpretation and his meaning or the biblical meaning of the word blessing. And then the rabbi went on to say that uh, it would be no surprise to anybody that he would refer to Genesis because of the religion that they knew he belonged to and adhered to. So he said that um, in, uh, in uh, recapitulating Genesis that the first day God created part of the universe and looked over his work in the evening and said, this is good. And the second day did the same thing. Looked over and said, this is good. And repeated that each day for five days. And it was thought that on the sixth day when he created, you know, people like you and me, he also looked over his work for that day, and it was thought for centuries, apparently, until just a few decades ago when new scrolls were discovered, it was thought that he had said the same thing, this is good. But since then, some of the text has been reinterpreted, and apparently the Hebrew word that he said on the sixth day is one that is very close phonetically to the word good in Hebrew, but does not mean exactly that. What it means is this is incomplete. And then the rabbi said, whenever you are in a momentary uh, experience of feeling good and feeling warm and feeling sensitive and feeling spiritual, you are feeling complete and that is the blessing and I want to tell you right now that on the 13th of November at this moment you have been partly responsible or fully responsible for providing me with a feeling of warmth a feeling of understanding and this fellowship and program has also, and a feeling of sensitivity and spirituality 
And I want to thank you for the blessings 